today we step into our next chapter of the book of Daniel, and as has already been read to you, uh, we have this second dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's funny that Nebuchadnezzar again turns to his magicians and uh, sorcerers and Chaldeans and astrologers and all the, the gang, the, 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 the uh, gaggle of, uh, of soothsayers. And, and surprisingly enough, they, they can't do it again. And so he calls for Daniel. And Daniel is able to interpret uh, this dream for him. And it's a troubling dream. And just to remind ourselves, uh, Daniel, or excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar sees a dream of a massive tree, a tree that has grown and its shade covers the earth. All the beasts come under it and find shelter. They find their food there. All the birds of the air come and make their nest there. And it's an amazing tree. It's a glorious tree. But then an agent from the Lord comes and says, cut the tree down. And the tree is cut down, though it is commanded that the roots and the stump be left. And the tree is taken down. And Nebuchadnezzar is bothered by this. He asks the soothsayers. They can't come up with any explanation. And Daniel comes and he receives from the Lord. He, he takes some time. It's interesting. It says that he takes some time. Maybe he's contemplating um, uh, how to relay this message to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the last vision, the last dream was uh, kind of sweet for Nebuchadnezzar. Told him he was going to be succeeded, but oh, I'm going to be succeeded. You're going to be succeeded. I mean, we all know we're not going to live forever. Um, so, okay, as long as I'm the gold head, you know, the fact that there'll be a silver, you know, torso after me is not that big a deal. But this one's a little tougher, uh, a little tougher to deliver, if you will. Because as Daniel says, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree. On the one hand, it's uh, quite a compliment, right? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a praiseworthy thing. I mean, you are this tree that has grown. You are the mightiest on the earth. Everybody finds their shelter under you. Your shade covers the earth and provides for them. And all the beasts come and all the birds find their, their resting place in you. I mean, this is, and I think Nebuchadnezzar had some sense that he, you know, that he was like that tree. Uh, his, he was the mightiest man on the earth at this time. Um, it's an amazing position of power. That's not the troubling part. The troubling part is that the tree gets cut down. And Nebuchadnezzar, you are going to be cut down. And you're going to be made to be like a beast of the field. And the dew is going to fall on you. You know, you're going to be out in the fields under, you know, exposed, like sleeping out in the elements and waking up soaked in dew because you haven't gone and found shelter in your, your house. Um, not exactly sure all the details of that, but it's a, it's a dream. It's a, it's a vision. Uh, but it's, it, anyway, it's an act of judgment. But the roots of the tree are still there. The Lord commanded that they be left because if you would repent, then, then the, the kingdom will come back. It can grow back. The potential is still there for it to grow back. And that's how it's, and that's how it's left. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, handles this by, you know, going out and surveying his kingdom and saying, hmm, look at this mighty kingdom that I have built all for my honor and glory. Now it had been a year. It had been 12 months. And Nebuchadnezzar, strolling on the, the top of his palace, surveys his mighty kingdom and says, 
Ah, is this not Babylon the Great that I have made for my own glory? And that was it. As soon as he said that, the voice came and said, okay, you're done. Yeah, you're done. Yeah, uh, you're done. And, uh, and sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar loses his sense. He, he, by the judgment of God, becomes like an animal, literally uh, crawling on the ground and eating grass. Um, his hair grows like eagle's feathers, we're told, just grows, you know, squirrely and long, and, and his nails like talons and claws, and he's in the ground and he's eating grass. Uh, until finally, by Nebuchadnezzar's own words, he lifts his head to heaven and gives God glory. And Nebuchadnezzar is restored. So it's quite a, quite a story, quite a cycle of a story. And, there's much for us to glean here. Here now we leave, if you will, uh, in some sense, our theme of living in exile, because this isn't a story about how Daniel relates to uh, exile, exilic living, although th there is something to it, and I referenced this um, uh, uh, last week, in fact, when Daniel interprets the first dream. They, in some sense, here is the role of, of us living in exile, that we are to be a prophetic voice. We are to give interpretation to the significance of things. Now, it doesn't mean we're all to be interpreting people's dreams. I don't mean that. But again, I go to the book of Revelation where in that third series of seven, uh, the angels come forth blowing forth trumpets of judgment, you know. And, and it is the people of God who put words to what we can interpret the large 40,000-foot view of what the Lord is doing in the world. I, I can't get down into the minutia. I can't explain why my friend Brian has prostate cancer. I, I can't get in the weeds that way, nor should I. Or I can't say, well, now, let me explain. The Lord is saying this to you, Brian. I, I have to be very, very careful of that. I can't do that. But what I can do and what we are called to do as those living in exile is say why there is cancer. I can't say why you have cancer, but I can say why there is cancer. All right, and cancer is a result of man's rebellion against God. It, along with every other calamity and disaster, this is the world we chose when we abandoned the Father's house, right? When we went off to the far city, and for those who weren't here for the whole service, I'm referencing our New Testament reading today, which was the parable of the prodigal son. When you choose to abandon the father's house, you end up in the pigsty. It may take time, but that's where the road leads. I can, and Daniel puts words to that for Nebuchadnezzar. And so if we wanted to make some connection with what it means to live in exile, you ought to be prepared to do that. As, as Daniel's, if you will, living in Babylon, we need to declare to the world what's happening. We're, we're the vision interpreters on a very broad scale doesn't mean we start interpreting people's dreams, so don't misread me. But on a broad scale, we're able to tell the story. We can tell the world what God is about and what he's doing. But in this case, let's just hone in on Nebuchadnezzar and deal with the situation at hand. Here we have Nebuchadnezzar in his own words. He is declaring to everyone, he says in the very beginning of chapter 4, I want my whole kingdom to know this story. And it's an embarrassing story. I mean, the king... The emperor, the most important, powerful man in the entire world, 
it looks like a beast and he's crawling around eating grass, okay? And yet he's like, I need to tell you this story. There's no hiding it, no censoring the press here. So no, no, I want to tell this in my own words. And it's a story of the catastrophic effects of pride. And Nebuchadnezzar has learned. We know he has learned from this because he's the one that says, I need to tell the world this story. What is pride? Well, in, the beautiful thing about this story is we see it laid out for us, again, in really big, bold colors, in all caps here. Right? Pride is Nebuchadnezzar who by a worldly standard, by human standards, has every reason to boast. Who can boast over Nebuchadnezzar? He can literally boast over everybody. And he stands atop his palace, surveys all that he has, and says this, is this not the work of my hands? That I have done for my own glory. Here is the essence of pride, and again, in cartoonish figure. But pride is... Me, me, me. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis, in speaking about humility, which I think if we said, what's the opposite of pride? I think we'd say humility. And C.S. Lewis, in, uh, in Screwtape, uh, no, is it Screwtape Letters? I'm, I might be mi mixing up here. But anyway, Screwtape Letters, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis says, humility, no, it's not Screwtape Letters, but he does deal with pride. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not having to talk yourself down when you are really good at something, okay? Somebody who is amazing at something doesn't have to, in humility, say, well, I'm really not. You know, that's sort of self-deprecating. Not that there's not time for self-deprecation, but that doesn't automatically mean you're being humble. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. In fact, in Screwtape Letters, he says, Really, what the Lord wants is somebody who can build a really beautiful cathedral, stand back and look at it and say, wow, that is a great job. That is a really beautiful cathedral. And yet, he says, would have been just as happy and just as excited if somebody else had built it. Humility is not thinking, humility is not required of you to stand there and go, that's not really that great. No, you could say, wow, that's really great. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, C.S. Lewis says. Humility is thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself. Looking at the work of your hands and going, wow, that's awesome, because it is awesome. But had someone else done it, you would have said the exact same thing. It's not about me. And pride is about me. Pride is when you are the dominant character in the movie of your life that's going on all day. When you are the main character, you, 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 everything's about you and how it affects you and how they wronged you and how you deserve more. And how what you did is really great and how, you know. And this can be really overt and, and cartoonish, like Nebuchadnezzar, this is the work of my hands and I've done it for my glory. Almost no one ever says that. And yet many of us think that. 
It's much more subtle than it happens here with Nebuchadnezzar. Pride is when we make ourselves the center, put ourselves on center stage, make ourselves the chief character. I love, because you know I love R.C. Sproul's definition of sin, that sin is cosmic treason. And I just heard uh, Tim Keller say, and I love this in a former sermon, he said, he said, pride is cosmic plagiarism. I was like, oh, I love that. Because you're taking credit for someone else's work, right? We teach our students at school, you're not allowed to plagiarize. You know, if you're going to turn in a paper, it needs to be your paper. You can't steal someone else's words and then put tag your name on it. That's plagiarism. That's wrong. And I love the fact that Keller identifies pride this way because Really, when you build the great cathedral and then you stand back and slap your name on it, not that we can't sign our work or those kinds of things, you know the the point here. But when we say, look at the work of my hands, look what I have done, Keller says, you're plagiarizing. Because all that you have is gift from God. The, The talent you have, the time you have, the abilities you have, the ideas you had, the models you had, the tools you had, the, 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 the materials you had. All these things are gifts from God. And pride forgets that. Pride buys the lie that no, this is my essay. I, I did this. When what you were doing is using another author's words and presenting it as your own. I think that's real, that's very helpful. Pride forgets what Paul challenges us with when he says, what do you have that you have not received? Pride forgets that. Pride gets a narrow tunnel vision that can only see in the moment the things they've done. They do not recognize how much they, what they have done, what they have done is dependent upon things that are beyond their control. The the, the things I do are dependent on an almost an infinite number of things that I had nothing to do with. I didn't make myself the way I am. I didn't give myself my DNA. I didn't have myself born in America in 1970 to my mother and father as a male. I didn't, I didn't determine the course of history that made this country a free country where I could do all sorts of things I couldn't have done otherwise. All these things are pure gift to me that I operate in the middle of, and yet I stand back and go, ah, oh, look what I've done. You've done nothing. You've done, you've done, you, the, the things I've done, if you can even find them, are so unsubstantial as being independent works of my own. They are not. They are gifts of God. I am am but a steward of opportunities, abilities, opportunities that God has given to me. And pride forgets that. Pride says, I deserve. Pride says, I am owed. Either positively or negatively. You see it positively in Nebuchadnezzar. I say positive just to mean like it's already there. And Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, basically I am owed glory for this. Of course, look at this. Of course I'm the most powerful man in the world. Look at what I've done. And pride works the other way. When everything's stripped from us, it would be, it would have been very easy for Daniel 
to have it the other way around. How dare this happen to me? This isn't fair that this happened to me. When we use words like that, and this is very common, when we go through things, we just say, well, it's just not fair. Again, it's an, it is a symptom, no, not a symptom, I guess a symptom of pride. It's an indicator of pride. We think we're owed something we're not. We think we're owed better circumstances. We think we're owed less suffering. We think we're owed more prosperity. This is what pride does. And in some sense, we see it in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son comes to his father, and he wants what's rightfully his. But it's so obvious in the story, it's not rightfully his. But that's what the son wants. Give me my inheritance. I am owed something as your son. That's a ridiculous thing to claim, that you are owed an inheritance. Inheritance is a gift from your father, from your mother, passed down to you. But the son comes and says, I want what's mine. And the older brother does the same thing at the end. It's not just the younger. The younger brother looks like a complete loser because he comes to his father and demands his inheritance. But the older brother is just as much a loser because the son, of course, the, when the younger son finally has his Nebuchadnezzar moment and literally is with the beasts and then makes his way back to the father's house, the older brother says, you know, he's upset because he feels like the younger brother is now eating into what is rightfully his. If the, son, if the younger son gets half the inheritance, that means the older son gets the other half. If the younger son takes his half and goes out and squanders it, leaving just the elder brother's half to remain, but now the younger son comes back and the father starts throwing parties from what he has left, that means we're cutting into the older son's inheritance in order to celebrate the return of the younger son. See, now you're cutting into what is rightfully mine. And he's upset about it. And I haven't gotten what I deserve. I've worked hard. I don't deserve this. He doesn't deserve that. All this deserve language are instances of pride. And brothers and sisters, we have to be careful of this. Pride is insidious and it is in us all. And yes, there is good pride. It's okay to stand back and look at something you've done and be proud of it. To, to, to say, that's beautiful, in a good, in a good, a small p sense, right? To have a wholesome pride and joy. If, if we take pride to mean a certain joyful satisfaction in the work of your hands, there's nothing wrong with that. That we talked about this before. God, in his humility, allows you that. He rejoices in it. There's nothing wrong with that. But when that small p pride starts to change and become capital P, pride, where we start to slide into the place of God, where we start to, as Keller says, plagiarize, where we start to take glory that is not ours, when we start to use words like we deserve, maybe we don't even think we're getting the applause we should get for the work we've done. It starts to creep in very quickly from a sort of contented satisfaction in the work of our hands, small p, God-glorifying pride, to ugly battery acid to the soul pride that starts to eat away at our joy. It undoes us. It turns us into narcissists. 
self-centered, glory-eating monster. And that's what we see with Nebuchadnezzar. So, Nebuchadnezzar, so first we have to just deal with what pride is. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, we know, is struggling with pride. He's very proud that he's the, uh, he's the gold head. We know he's so proud that he builds a whole gold statue. And that was last chapter. And anyone who doesn't bow to this will end up in the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar is not quite learning his lessons here. And now we come to this vision in, in chapter 4. And Nebuchadnezzar is struggling with this pride. And he's given a warning. And in some sense, I'm afraid of this and I'm encouraged by this. That the Lord does not just turn him into a beast. The Lord gives him a dream. And warns him he's going to be turned into a beast. And in God's providence, brothers and sisters, he sends us warnings. He sends us warnings. Maybe they don't come in such a dramatic way as a dream that needs an interpreter to come. But nonetheless, he sends us warnings of the futility of our pride. Little warnings of what pride does to us, that indeed it is like battery acid to our soul. It eats away at us. It strips us of the joy of good things. And there are the warning signs. It's like knowing the warning signs of you know, heart trouble. You start getting out of breath on activities where you didn't used to get out of breath. And it's like, that's a little warning sign. You might go get that check. Maybe it's not a heart issue, but maybe it is. And it's worth going. You start getting those little pains, if you're, especially if you're a guy. You get the pains down the left arm. That's a warning sign. Ought not to be ignored. We've been taught. Don't ignore the warning signs. Don't think, oh, it's just indigestion. Right? We've been told not to do that. Because these are warning signs. There are warning signs at work. There are warning signs in our relationships. There's all kinds of things that if we have antenna, we can pick up warning signs of trouble here or trouble with our health. And so the Lord gives us warning signs of the destructive nature of our pride. Things like frustration. Frustration, and I say this because it's, <laughs> I'm chief culprit. Right? Frustration comes from the refusal to recognize that you are not in control. And you're running into obstacles that are getting in your way. And your pride tells you, these should not be getting in my way. I should be overcoming. This plan I have should get done. And these obstacles come in your way and they cause you frustration. And that frustration is a sign. It's a warning sign like of a heart attack that we are battling with pride because we think we should be in control. I should be able to accomplish the things that I have planned. And these things are getting in my way and I'm frustrated by it. And it's a matter of pride. If you find yourself unable to celebrate other people's successes, right? If you struggle to see other people in the spotlight, these are the, if, if we can't, as C.S. Lewis said, look at the Grand Cathedral and we would have been just as happy and just as in awe and just as delighted if someone else would have built it. If we don't have that joy, then that's a sign. That's a little warning sign. We like it if we get the applause or the success. Or when we find ourselves struggling using the deserve word or the fairness word, when we find ourselves in trouble or calamity or about others, these are warning signs. If we struggle to sleep, 
right? Because we're anxious about the state of things as if, again, we feel like we have to have a grip on the future, a grip on things. These are warning signs. And just as the Lord gives warning signs to Nebuchadnezzar, so he gives warning signs to us. And may God give us very sensitive antenna to this that we might repent. Because the warning comes to Nebuchadnezzar so that he might repent. He actually, Daniel actually says to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, may you take and heed what I'm saying so that the Lord may prolong your prosperity. He doesn't say, hey, it doesn't matter what you do right now because this is coming. He actually says to him, may you take heed to what I'm saying so that your prosperity may be prolonged. So that maybe this doesn't happen. Like you can repent. You can turn right now, but Nebuchadnezzar would not. He would not. He, he's got the pain running down his left arm. He's shortness of breath. And he's just going around saying, I don't know, I had to you know, stretch it out. And 12 months later, there he is on the roof going, ah, look at the grandeur of what I've done for my glory. These warning signs are there for us that indeed we might repent. Because if not, the consequences of pride. So first we've thought about what pride is. Secondly, the warning signs of pride. Thirdly, the consequences of pride. And again, it's given to us in cartoonish. And as I've said again before, I, I'm not saying that as a, I'm not disgracing the text. I'm just saying it's really big, bold, like look at this. And yet in Nebuchadnezzar's experience is a picture of what happens to all of who succumb to pride. It's dehumanizing. That's why I'm using battery acid on the soul. It's corrosive. It's toxic. It eats down. It eats your joy away. It eats your humanity away. Instead of receiving things as gift from God that can be rejoiced in, it becomes something that strips us of joy, strips away our humanity. And we see that with Nebuchadnezzar as he literally becomes less than human. He is literally walking around on all fours with with claws and and feather hair. <laughs> but you see it with the younger brother as well in the parable of the prodigal son. He is literally with the beasts in the pigsty. Him and his demands from the father, give me what is rightfully mine so that I can have it, so that I can go satisfy my own lusts, my own desires, where does it lead? Again, a cartoonish image here for you. It leads to a pigsty where you are literally living with the pigs and eating their slop. You become an animal. And so it is for all. Not just these two crazy characters in the Bible. The point is this is what it does to you and to me. This is where it leads. If we do not repent, it leads to the dehumanization of the image of God. It is literally, they always say, pride goeth before the fall. It is the thing that brings us down, this pride. Right? We can go right back to the Garden of Eden. It was this pride of what is there potential for me to have that leads to the calamity, again, the dehumanization. Eve and Adam listened to the beast, and so they will become like beasts. And we see it very shortly thereafter with Cain and Abel and then Noah and off we go. And the whole, the whole story of humanity. You only need to click on the news to look at the beastly nature of humanity. 
But this is what happens when pride dominates us. And it's not just them out there. We in here have to be careful of this dehumanizing pride. It will land you with the beasts. And so what is the solution to pride? And this is where Nebuchadnezzar, it's an amazing story because this pagan king is literally brought to his knees, head in the grass, eating you know, eating grass and growing claws and living outside, having the dew soak him for seven periods of time. We don't know what that is. Is it seven weeks, seven months, seven seasons, seven? I don't know what it is. But for an extended period of time, a time that the Lord thought was complete, right? Seven. But after that, what, what is it? What's the trigger that turns him from a beast to a man again? And the answer is, he lifts his head. He lifts his head, his head that was turned inward on himself. All Nebuchadnezzar could think about was himself, and now has literally been driven into the dirt. All he can see is the grass. He's eating grass. His head is down. And what finally um, changes things for Nebuchadnezzar, this vision of repentance for us, is that Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven. He looks to God from whence his help shall come. What is it that changes the story for the young boy in the story of the prodigal son? And we don't get this with the elder brother. We're left hanging as to what he does. But with the younger brother, it's when he turns and looks home. He's wandering away. His, he has forgotten his father. His head is turned from his father. All the young boy can think about is himself and gratifying his own pleasures. And then he gets into the pigsty and all he can see is his own calamities and troubles. But when he turns his head home and sets his eyes back on his father and realizes that even being a servant in his father's house is better than being a beast you know, out here with the pigs. That just the, the beauty of being with my father and receiving the gifts of my father, his grace is better than anything I've ever had. When he does that, he finds himself with a ring back on his finger and a robe around him and a party being thrown for him. Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven and in lifting them to heaven of getting his eyes off of himself, Nebuchadnezzar is exalted and not just exalted, but restored. And his kingdom is given back to him, and his counselors are given back to him. And it, I guess we can say it's stuck, because this begins with Nebuchadnezzar saying, Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare to you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. Not, hey, I need to tell you this really rough story of what God did to me. No. I need to tell you these amazing signs and wonders which the Most High God has worked for me. Nebuchadnezzar looks back at this calamity. The man lost everything. He ends up in the pigsty eating the, eating the slop with the pigs like the younger brother. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I got to tell you what God did for me. He looks at it and is able to say, this even, this calamity, 
was grace to me. And I need to tell the world about it. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. This is what Nebuchadnezzar's writing as he retells the story later. He praises God for what has been done to him. And so maybe we can think about the fruit of repentance in this case. What does it look like? It, you, know, you know how you know that you are being healed of pride. One way you can see and, and that we should be careful not to be sinfully proud about. But one fruit that you can look for in being healed of pride is to be able to look at even calamity and say, Lord, the things you're doing for me instead of the raising of the fist like the younger brother, or excuse me, the older brother. How dare, I've worked for you so long. How dare you do this to me? I don't, des I deserve better. Which is our instinct when we suffer, is to say to God, I don't deserve this. Why are you doing this to me? Nebuchadnezzar provides us a beautiful, glorious picture of what a healed heart looks like where he can look at his calamity, his discipline, and say, how awesome are the mighty, wondrous works of the Lord and what he has done for me. So in this story, in this amazing story, we are reminded, brothers and sisters, about the ugliness of pride. Paul says, as we got it in our word of exhortation today from 1 Corinthians 10, you who stand, beware, beware, lest you fall. You who are prosperous, beware. And again, this is all of us who are prosperous in one way or another, prosperous in the circumstances of our life, prosperous in our age, prosperous in our gifts and abilities, prosperous in this or that. You who stand, beware. It's a dangerous thing. And our heart constantly needs to be checked. Look for the warning signs. And let us look to the Lord for our salvation. For as we have said, in that beautiful picture in Philippians chapter 2. The ultimate solution to this, the ultimate healing from this, the ultimate way in which we can have our pride broken and be healed is through the one who was worthy of all proper pride. Jesus Christ, who was equal with the Father, who willingly emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, he literally chose to go into the pigsty. He literally chose to be marred with like a beast, gored and whipped and beaten, dehumanized even, beyond human recognition. That's the depths he went to willfully, abandoning all pride. As I said, as he goes to the cross, he's being mocked as a loser. He's being mocked as being God forsaken. Everything, all the things, if you will, if we could say it this way, that meant the most to him. He was being accused of not having or having betrayed. or, And yet he chose that. He's, he's the anti-Nebuchadnezzar. He forsakes everything. He empties himself of everything. He pours everything out to the point of dehumanization so that he can rescue the dehumanized sinner. 
gather them up in the pigsty and bring them back to the father's house. And that's what he's done. And that's the reason you and I can be in the father's house today, rejoicing and singing praises to him. And therefore, to us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come, quoting from Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. How much more ought we be those who flee from pride? How much more ought we be those who recognize there is nothing I have that has not been given to me? Everything I have is gift. And therefore, I can endure all things. I can rejoice in all things because it's gift to me, because I have seen what my God has done for me. And so may we, as a cure for pride, not sort of white-knuckle it, as evangelicals tend to do, like, okay, I'm going to go to work today and try to be pride. You will fail at that. But the cure, the antidote to pride is faith. <laughs> it's actually worship. It's orienting ourselves toward the Lord, of focusing on Him and what He has done for us, that through Him, then, we might be satisfied and not self-centered. And may that be true of us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gracious and at times painful, but nonetheless gracious work. We thank you for the warning signs you give us, the fact that you remind us that we are not the center of the universe, the fact that you remind us that we are not in control over things, but that we are mere stewards of what you have given to us. Guard us from the pride of the younger brother and the pride of the elder brother that wants what's ours and thinks that we have earned certain things and that we deserve certain things. Father, we know better. We know better. We know because we say it often that were we ever to be given what we deserved, it would be hell. We know that, and yet we can't get ourselves to believe it. We still think we deserve better than we get. Instead, we pray that with our eyes fixed on Christ, who willfully gave up all things for us, that we might recognize, Father, that all we have is gift from you. And as such, fill us with joy. Relieve us from the tyranny of self-importance. And restore to us, we pray, the joy of our salvation. For we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.